Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we present a panel discussion on the future of healthcare in the U.S. The moderator is Michael Greenstone, former director of the Becker Friedman Institute and current faculty director of the UChicago Climate and Energy Institute. The guests are Amy Finkelstein, professor of economics at MIT and co-author with Laurent Inov of the book We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. Dr. Mark McClellan, former FDA commissioner and the Robert J. Margolis Professor of Business, Medicine, and Policy at Duke University and director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. And Joshua Gottlieb, co-director of BFI's Health Economics Initiative and professor of economics at the Harris School of Public Policy. The discussion was titled, Tearing Down Healthcare to Rebuild It for Everyone. We begin with moderator Michael Greenstone. Okay, Uh, it is an incredible honor to be up here with this esteemed group. We have two excellent panelists here, and I thought uh, I would start with Mark and uh, ask one key feature of Amy Laurent's proposal is something called basic insurance. Uh, They they go to great lengths to say uh, 70% of people buy supplemental, so they must have some idea what's in basic, but they also try and hide what's in basic. So what in practices someone who is a researcher and uh, uh, been a policymaker, what would this look like in, in the real world? Well, first off, uh, let me say thanks to you all for bringing this event together. It's great to be on stage with Amy. This is the most economist I've been on a panel on since the earlier days of my career, before I did all that uh, political and uh, government stuff. So I feel like coming back to roots. Um, I did want to try to bring in a uh, side of political and policy um, reality here. I think that the, the 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 book is a terrific discussion of why basic essential medical care um, is, I think, the arc where the United States is headed to. Um, but in terms of getting from here to there, I don't want to talk about the past, and I cannot uh, great history of what went wrong in the path to universal health insurance in the United States. But um, do want to think uh, to talk a little bit about going forward. And in any political discussion of expanding health insurance, reforming health care, the, the number one talking point is always first, you're gonna don't keep- tear it down. You, you can keep what you have if you yeah, want you it. So that's been, you, you can keep yeah. your doctor, you can keep your health insurance, you can keep your arrangements. That's been the case ever since 1990, which I think was before, was before my time a bit professionally, definitely before most of the people in this room's time. Remember, uh, the Congress passed a bipartisan bill called the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act then, which provided a more generous benefit than Medicare finally got around to providing and provided protection against those very high costs, you know, following what the economist who advised uh, then President George W. Bush said uh, should be done. 
And that bill was repealed less than a year later by a groundswell of opposition from Medicare beneficiaries who had actually done the math. You know, they were getting some supplemental coverage on their own. They were being taxed to pay for the new benefit. So they were actually, and they were relatively healthy, well off, and did turn out worse off. And, and Amy went through in the book and her presentation how most people would be better off if we went to some kind of basic coverage uh, design, but there are a significant number who I think wouldn't be, and that's been a real challenge for every political effort to expand coverage since then. Most recently, the Affordable Care Act, President Obama, 2010, went out of his way to say, if you like your coverage, you can keep it. Um, the Republicans found one kind of small exception to that among these very limited plans that weren't um, for, for large employers that were sold in certain states where people did have to lose coverage. It was on every ad that fall uh, and uh, big losses for the Democrats in the midterm elections. And maybe that would have happened anyway. But the point is that there are there is a, underneath all of this a desire to cover what really matters to people. I think the and what would be good to talk about tonight is some uh, pathway for how the U.S. can actually get there. If you think about what would go into an essential package of benefits, um, there are different ways to do it. Historically, countries like um, England have focused on having a national bo expert body decide what's sort of cost-effective enough and what isn't. The United States has definitely not gone in that direction. On the other hand, if you look at what's actually in our public insurance programs today, which don't cover everybody, but kind of reflect the idea that's required under the Affordable Care Act, um, President Obama's legislation for all plans, that they have to cover some minimum set of types of benefits. So emergency care, primary care, some preventive services, drugs, uh, some rehab services, et cetera, but it's pretty general about how to do that. And the most popular and fastest growing forms of public health insurance in the United States are basically overall person level amounts of payments in, in Medicaid or in Medicare, what's called Medicare Advantage, um, that gives each individual a chance to have some choice in the insurance plan through which they get this set of benefits. And then a lot of work inside that insurance plan for better or worse, but I think increasingly individualized care that reflects preventive services and interventions for diseases and the like. And that's what's growing the most in terms of types of insurance in the United States. And if you thought about, well, could the US get there? Um, probably the best path is some version of expanding these kinds of insurance plans, Medicaid through capitated plans or Medicare through uh, Medicare Advantage. What does that mean? That's like every man, woman, child gets ten thousand dollars to spend on whatever they want in health insurance. Well, that that's kind of the way the Republicans, I think, would pre present it. I think the way that Democratic supporters of these reforms would describe it is, well, it's a it's an amount of money, but it should be higher or lower based on how risky your health is. So risk adjustment is a big part of of these coverage systems. And there's also some oversight. It's not just, you know, here's a check and a phone book, or as, as uh, these programs used to be criticized when we were implementing the first version of this. It's a, a lot of government oversight, transparency around at least some 
measures of quality of care and complaint rates and access to care and, and some choice in those programs. And again, more flexibility in being able to cover certain kinds of services, often without co-pays for people that if you try to do this through you know, coming up with a list of what's covered and what's not, be very hard to keep up with the changes in medical technology, very hard to personalize to the different needs of you know, how people might want to spend that kind of money on their behalf while still meeting some general essential coverage requirements. Hmm. Amy, do you want to respond to that? Or I have a quick, uh, I, 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 I very unfairly, uh, both Mark and Josh are excellent at policy and at research. And so I was going to unfairly slot Mark into policy in the beginning here, and now unfairly slot Josh uh, into uh, the academic research and ask if you had any high-level reactions to the book before we let Amy respond. But if you wanted to say something quickly, Amy, go well, ahead. No, I've, I've, I've said enough for the moment. <laughs> so Amy, Matt in his introduction mentioned uh, one of your earlier papers on the aggregate effects of Medicare. And I want to put that in the context of some other uh, early work you did on the return to capital versus labor when Medicare more generously reimbursed capital versus labor that naturally shifted the, the incentives for hospitals and how they chose to organize their production. More generally, the, the point that a fair amount of research supports is that supply responds quite strongly to the different sets of incentives that policy creates for it. And so when you talk about taking the 9% of GDP that we spend on public health care and redistributing it to ensure that everyone has basic adequate coverage, but no more than basic and no more than adequate, that means we're not going to put all of this money into the latest technology, into the fanciest hospitals, into the more expensive doctors, because as Mark's been talking about, when we have a budget constraint, we're going to have to make some cuts. And that's going to mean we're going to have less investment, less innovation. So my question for you is, should we decide, and who's going to decide, how to ration dialysis? Should we have eliminated the amazing innovation COVID drugs over the past year? Or more generally, the massive uh, spur to pharmaceutical innovation that came after the MMA, I'm sorry, an acronym, yeah. the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, <laughs> which of these do we want to take away in order to ensure that we, that we have this basic level of, uh, of not so great healthcare that's exactly uniform across the board? Okay, these are, these are am I allowed to respond now? <laughs> Yeah, you're okay. allowed to respond. <laughs> these are great questions. Um, thank you both very much. Um, let me say one thing that your, both of your comments highlighted, which we highlight in the book, but perhaps I didn't in the talk, and so I'm glad you did, is the other key element of our plan is that that basic coverage have a budget, right? And that is both a really banal comment, like right, what government program doesn't have a budget, and a totally radical comment because the government program that doesn't have a budget is US, the US healthcare program. When we talk about the Medicare budget, we mean how much Medicare spent last year or how much we think it's gonna spend next year, not an actual budget constraint. And so we do find that the only way you're going to 
you know, uh, keep this program from unintentionally growing. And the only way you can start to make the hard choices about what is in basic coverage is if you have, as every other country does, a budget. But then to Josh's rabble-rousing comments about, um, you know, yes, I understand supply curves slope up. You've taught me that in healthcare. Um, but again, just to be clear, that's in the basic plan. You can think of the basic plan, since you know, Michael wants to be clear on what it is, you can think of it roughly as Medicaid for all, where Medicaid is the public health insurance program for low-income individuals in the United States. About a fifth of Americans are on it. It has, for the most part, no cost sharing or co-pays or deductibles. On paper, it looks pretty generous in terms of what it covers. It covers a lot of things, but there are longer wait times than in private insurance. There are fewer amenities. Uh, there's more of what you know Mark described of government oversight and author, you know, regulation and authorization before you can get care. So, but Josh, to your point, whether or not that uh, is going to reduce total healthcare spending and hence innovation or supply is not at all clear because we do think the other 70% of Americans are going to supplement. So we've been criticized for saying, well, we're not going to solve the problem of how to reduce healthcare spending in the United States, how to get that 18% of GDP number down. And the reason we don't do it is in part because we don't think it's, it's easy to know how. That, that there are no ways that we know of to radically reduce healthcare spending that won't have potentially adverse consequences that you have to trade off. One of which, you know, you know, one of the things people like to say is, let's get prices down. We pay more for drugs. We pay more for physicians in other countries. Let's increase access by getting prices down. We may want to do that, but it would certainly come at the cost of reduced supply and reduced innovation. Our only point is we don't have to solve that problem to solve the insurance problem, because we're just going to hold the cost down in the basic plan and let the market choose as it has been doing in the supplemental. So then why solve the insurance problem? <laughs> that is a very fair question. Um, you, one, one could uh, unfairly look at our book and say, look, you've kind of said everyone basically has backdoor access to insurance coverage. The uninsured get a lot of uncompensated care. You've just told me that we're not going to solve the problem of high health care spending. And not only that, we're not really going to reduce health, health disparities. So what's the point, right? That would be an unfair criticism. But should you have, uh, should, should you choose to levy it? Um, I would respond. Do you get to judge if it's unfair? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, you know, at, at a very simple rhetorical level, I don't, you know, our, we were urged to not spend much time on the problems with US health insurance because nobody, there's nobody who's going to take the other side of that argument and say we have a well-designed and well-efficient system. I think more specifically, we think that we're punching, with, with our 9% of uh, taxpayer dollars as a share of GDP being spent on healthcare, we're punching well below our weight in terms of issues like people not knowing which programs they're eligible for or how to get coverage or failing to stay covered once they're already covered because they haven't sent in the form that shows that they still have low enough income or they still have breast cancer or they have coverage but they're still facing large out-of-pocket medical bills because of these high deductibles. So the problems we want to solve is to actually turn US health insurance into a program that actually provides access to essential medical care and doesn't risk exposing you to catastrophic medical spending, which I don't think anyone would argue the current uh, system is doing for most people. 
I mean, Oh, go ahead, Mark. I'm saying certainly a great goal, and maybe back since you wanted me to play the policy role. Remember, I am an economist. So no, no, no. So it was only for the first question. I'm not gonna. Well, just to to pick up on this one, you know, just as the all of the actual debates about expanding coverage come across this this stumble over taking coverage away, including generosity of coverage from people who have it now they also are inextricably linked to cost because these programs do have additional costs. If you were going to try to expand coverage without raising costs, you have to do something, bless you, to, uh, we got preventive coverage for that, but uh, uh, there, there's, um, uh, so there, there, these debates never happen in isolation. And I actually think that could be a, a useful feature of trying to make more progress in highlighting just how important it is for everyone to have access to some basic level of coverage. Um, the, the reason I say that is because the um, basic uh, uh, benefit, like um, uh, Amy has been talking about, is something that you can actually use to try to drive improvements in the design of, of uh, healthcare. So you talked about I mean, in your remarks and in the book very eloquently about form, sorry, function before form, but as Josh was just saying, function follows form. You know, what you end up paying for, how you structure these benefits makes a, a big difference. Um, North Carolina, where I'm based now, recently became the first state with a, not just Republican, but veto-proof Republican legislature to expand Medicaid, and it did that by a framing of this issue in, in two elements. One was uh, the fact that this was really necessary to improve access to basic care for all the uh, reasons that you described in the book. Uh, but the other was that the way that coverage was going to be implemented was going to be different than the way that um, these you know, smaller scale, more traditional Medicaid programs have been run based on fee-for-service payments and costs that couldn't be easily controlled. Instead, it would be under these uh, competitive budget limits on what people would have to spend on their care with accountability for actually improving things uh, like on your list, like maternal health uh, disparities, opioid use disorder, um, hospitalization or emergency visits and outcomes. So it's a different way of paying for care and designing care that was actually essential in linking to the uh, support, political support for expanding coverage. So I don't think, you know, I, I, I get the focus on starting with the basic principle of essential, and I think most people in policy today talk about health care, not medical care, because okay. it's you know, a lot of things that can improve health and be integrated in the service around people can make a difference. Um, but I think um, to really make progress, putting the two together, uh, addressing Josh's concern, uh, just how important design is in terms of what's covered and how and what the incentives are. Um, it, I don't think it's either or. And I think there are a lot of ways in these kinds of, you know, more capitated programs that um, uh, put more responsibility on the providers for limiting costs, pay, place them more at financial risk, not just the uh, insurer, um, to get to low or no co-pays like in some of these, you know, these faster growing forms of Medicaid coverage. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not either or, but it's it's sort of either and in the sense of we wanted to be clear in the book on what we thought had what had to be, what were the must-dos in a in a redesign. And then there are a lot of extremely important design questions around, you know, are we going to have fee for service or capitation or exactly how are uh, uh, plans going to be designed where we we are explicitly and deliberately silent because 
we think that these are actually areas where reasonable people can disagree. Unreasonable people can also disagree. <laughs> but like, the, you know, the, there are pros and cons to, you know, single payer versus multi-payer, private insurers versus public insurers versus a mix. And so all of those are possible within the, the broad contours of what we're proposing. And those could be decided either on the merits, as people argue them out, and or on the politics. And that's a little related to the, to the teardown point, which you know, you've convinced me is not going to sell well politically. So I'll leave it to the you know, people who are going to go off and do policy to, to repackage that for us. But I think the point is you know, the, the Obama line was, if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Right, him or her. Not if nobody loves their insurance plan. They, right. So, so we're not saying you can. You're, you know, yes, your insurance plan may change, but you know, if you are buying supplemental coverage and you want to keep getting medical care the way you are currently getting it, the supplemental coverage can make sure you do that. Can I ask a question here? This uh, nebulous basic idea. Uh, you notice that Mark didn't define it either. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so we have an idea on what it is today, but uh, was your and Laurent's like secret agenda? Is this like a Trojan horse to have Canadian or UK health insurance? Because won't basic just grow over time? Oh, you totally found me out. Um, so, uh, so like, who's going to stop it from right, growing? Well, so the budget or a whoa, 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 which budget? The, the budget Congress passes every year? The, the no. The, <laughs> Touche. Uh, the uh, the the budget in the basic coverage. I think in, you know. In fact, some of the arguments with the UK system is that it hasn't grown. There's arguments about whether it should grow more or less. You can't even begin to have those debates in the United States because we don't have a healthcare budget. And one of the and one of the reasons we don't articulate exactly what's in basic beyond what, as Mark said, you know, the obvious like you know, broad contours is precisely because what the definition of essential medical care is, is going to change as incomes evolve, as new technologies are developed, and as notions of what constitute disease evolve. So countries are including the US in Medicare, increasingly recognizing that mental health is an important component of health and adding coverage for that. And so, you know, Mark described how it worked in the UK, which is probably what people are most familiar with. But some version of that is what happens in every other high-income country except the US, which is A, there's a budget. And then B, you know, for new technologies, there's a you know, group of technocrats who in most countries score it, like in the UK, on cost effectiveness. And then there's a group of stakeholders that you know, think about need and priorities, which is partly cost effective and part, partly you know, you know it when you see it, and partly politics. And they're all constrained by the budget. And sometimes there's debates about, should we raise the budget? Should we spend less on the military and more on health insurance? It sounds quaint, but they do that in other countries, right? Or should, or should we raise taxes? And I think that's how you evolve to what's in, what, what is covered by basic. Mark, does it sound quaint to you? Uh, it, 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 it doesn't sound quaint. It does sound like um, an issue that would be good to talk about further. So that's why we're here tonight. And, um, as Amy has shown in much of her earlier work, the, the technology, the innovation, the care that comes along is not, as economists would say, exogenous. Uh, it depends a lot on the extent of coverage and the nature of coverage. And that's why I do think these issues are kind of uh, inseparable in terms of thinking about costs. And even more importantly, if you really value health, uh, thinking about how healthcare and health insurance actually translates into health. I'm not quite as defeatist as the slides. Yeah. 
doesn't matter much for, for population health. It, it, there are other things that absolutely matter much more, and it would be great to find ways to reprioritize more so the U.S. isn't touching below, below its weight on, on um, uh, health outcomes. But there are absolutely ways to make healthcare work better to support innovation. And this is also, so that's, that's one issue. I, I would like to get in the point about, or this is another place where I think economists like Amy could help, is in articulating to policymakers how to make supplemental insurance work well. Supplemental insurance in healthcare is mainly not related to, at least in the US, the you know additional amenities that you get from your own private room or better meals or things like that. It's additional, it's less time to access to care, and especially it's becoming more and more important in the kind of care that you receive. So uh, for most uh, cancer risks and most cancers, they're now multimodal therapies. Some are more cost-effective than others. Many are not very well uh, and not fully understood when they make it to market. And there are very different ways in which insurance plans could handle that. What I haven't seen so much of, and it'd be great to, again, think about how this could actually happen in the U.S., it could make it more real, is how do you get pro uh, programs that help people buy up to higher and higher levels of care when a couple of things are going on. One, there are all kinds of economies of scale and scope in coordinating care around a person. Um, so you have like one person who, one uh, a set of healthcare providers who knows them, who can put together the, the right combination of treatments. Um, I think you were on a, 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 there's a seminar presentation by one of your colleagues this week, I think at Duke, about uh, cell-free DNA screening tests in uh, prenatal care, yeah. which could be part of a very good comprehensive program to improve kids and maternal outcomes. But as you pointed out, it's more cost effective for some people than others. And implementing that is something where you need to put together data, AI, et cetera, around individuals. So how do you make that work? Um, and also with the issues around adverse selection that, you, that you've written about as well. So I, I think they're, they're the, the, the main point I want to emphasize is that the other arc here, besides trying to get to a minimum essential benefit, is an arc to healthcare that's more and more individualized around a person and more and more focused on prevention and benefits from data and new ways of paying for care. You know, a lot of those UK um, cost effectiveness standards are based on a presumption that services are going to be priced at a per unit level. That's not the way you should be pricing drugs. Drugs have very low marginal cost and can convey a lot of value. So there are subscription models, there are other ways of, of, of uh, reforming reimbursement that are just hard to do if you have like one level of, of uh, uh, products that are included yeah. for certain people maybe and, and another level for, for others. Okay, so, oh, Josh, I was gonna, go ahead. I was gonna build on Mark's comment if yeah, I could. Yeah, I have a question for you. Uh, okay. Let me just build on Mark's comment briefly about going to the fundamental economics of, uh, of what we're trying to do here. Insurance is supposed to be about, at least this is what all the students have heard us say for many years, supposed to be about protection from catastrophic financial risks. And when Mark's talking about the important parts of medical care being prevention and all of that, that's exactly the opposite, right? So. Why are we talking about a universal, comprehensive care bundle of what we sort of expect everyone to get when most of that is things that people can reasonably be expected to afford for themselves? 
that answer these questions? Uh, go ahead, but I... Uh, you guys have raised a number it's of... It's your book, but since I have the three of you here, <laughs> I have my own questions that are unrelated to the uh, book, but uh, I'm desperate to ask the three of you, but go I'll ahead. I'll be brief. We'll so talk you guys about have raised book. a number of very interesting points, all of which we address in the book. Um, <laughs> but to just quit... No, we, we do, but to just quickly... Uh, Respond to a couple of them. So, That's so, the, in the online appendix. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Josh, I, I think on the preventive and primary care point, you know, you raise a, obviously a very good economic point. Also, you know, it's 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 probably the place where we do worst in terms of actually providing publicly financed care to the uninsured, and and so we struggled a lot with the question of well, if it's not revealed to be part of what we're trying to do, and it's not what you know, should should we cover it? And you know, there are arguments that maybe it saves money, and I like didn't want to go there because I don't I don't think we know that it doesn't, but we certainly don't know that most of it does. In the end, what we concluded is that even for the privately insured who have coverage for all of this. Primary care is 5% of healthcare spending. So I don't think it's worth spending a lot of time worrying about it is, is the short answer on that. And then I just wanted to say quickly, uh, Mark, you raised a number of great points, but on this particular concern of like, if you separate some services, they're provided by one person and some by another, then the whole coordination of care can fall apart. I just wanted to be clear that there's no reason that for the 70% that have supplemental coverage, that couldn't be provided and in fact, might well be by the same insurer that's providing the basic in many countries, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Israel, you know, these are vertically integrated uh, insurers that are offering the basic and the supplemental. So I think that particular issue need not be an issue, but I know you're desperate to desperate. lob. <laughs> okay, so we've got like three of the greatest healthcare experts, in the, at least in the American system here tonight. Uh, and we're talking that Amy's telling us what we should really care about, uh, and that's great. Uh, but like, what the hell is going on? Like, we spend so much, uh, and life expectancy is terrible compared to other countries. Like, can we just not evade that elephant in the room for one second? Like, what would you guys, why, why is it so, and what would you do to change it? Don't evade that. <laughs> I was going to Josh. Oh, me. <laughs> All right. So yeah, Josh was supposed to start. Yeah. We give our health system much bigger challenges than most other countries. We run a bunch of people over with cars. We eat a bunch of those sliders that they were serving out before. Mm -hmm. They're very delicious. They're really <laughs> delicious. And we choose to take our higher GDP than most other countries in the form of we got to eat a lot of sliders. We have is that true? a but is country that true? that's... Is our diet much worse? Our obesity is much worse. Our obesity is much worse, yeah. Okay. Well, some other countries are, are catching up. Yeah. So, but yeah. And, and, They're and learning there is from now the... medical innovation that is likely to make a, a material difference in obesity rates yeah. in, the, in the United States. We have a geographically very okay, so dispersed country. So we've made ourselves unhealthy. We've made ourselves unhealthy. We live in a, a geographically dispersed country where it's hard to provide medical care in all the places that people need it. So we have a harder problem. And I don't think it's fair to say that we get nothing for our spending. Um, we may look like we don't get more than other countries because a lot of innovation is being done here that is then exported. So we spend the money. We share the benefits. That's great. No objection from me for doing that. But it means that you know, you've got to really be careful in how you think about the inputs and the outputs. 
Yeah. Better value-added measures, okay. Yeah, in other countries, you know, again, it's like what's causing what, but in other countries, it is generally harder to spend more money on health care than it is in the United States. And uh, one way of looking at the U.S. system is, well, it's got a lot of gaps and incompleteness. The other is um, where, where the U.S. and other countries differ is not in public spending on health care. It's in private spending on health care, and we make it a lot easier uh, for people to spend more. Um, what we don't do is make it easy for people to spend that money well. And that gets back to the point I was trying to make about encouraging what people want to buy in healthcare, I think, like in other areas of their life, is more integrated solutions that, that help make their lives easier and help them get the best access to the treatment for their own particular needs. This is the kind of trend in product development and consumerization and customization that's happening in many other industries, and healthcare is well behind. Anything that tends to fragment uh, services that are covered, services that are not, tends to get in, in the way of those kinds of more integrated solutions. So there are good reasons for, for not covering everything, for trying to set limits, uh, et cetera. I just don't think the economists, uh, and this is something that I think economists should be helping with more, have helped lay out a pathway to how to do um, what Amy's saying in terms of providing supplemental coverage that is efficient, that goes along with these trends towards more prevention, that's what people really wanna pay for, and you can't separate health insurance from, for catastrophic protection from health insurance that keeps you healthy uh, is, is my okay, point. Okay, so let me bastardize these two answers. Yeah. I think Josh was, actually, if you could measure value at it, our value at it's really good because uh, we smoke, we drink, we eat, all the stuff. And uh, your answer is, like, can we break it down? It's like if we could just design the incentives a little bit better. That Americans seem with their revealed preference to be showing that they want to spend more on health care and we're not necessarily helping them spend that money effectively. But what a lot of other countries have done have made so But wait, that explains why life expectancy is so poor. Yeah, so, so, oh, I'm sorry. So I, I should get back to the right, I should yeah, get back so to the life expectancy. That was so interesting yeah. in hearing your answers to the questions because you phrased it the way I usually hear it, which is we spend twice as much as a share of the economy on healthcare as any other country and we have worse health outcomes. And we still What's die. Going on. Yeah. And in some sense if you hear their two answers, they're doing what you know, which I agree with is, is sort of separating them. One is we spend a lot of money inefficiently. And if I don't think we totally know how, but you have some, you know, I think. But the markets ideas. agreed, right. but they've but disagreed. No, 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 yeah. They're not disagreeing. And, jo so, and Josh is saying, no, we're great. It's just uh, we didn't so bother I to measure value at it. There's a lot of waste that we could, if we redesigned our policies, reduce healthcare spending without harming health. And I heard Josh is saying, yeah, but that's not the we could do that, and that would get you know the the denominator or the numerator of spending down. But in terms of actual health outcomes, the problems are you know gun violence, cigarette smoking, obesity, pollution, etc. Not necessarily medical care. So in some sense, we're we're linking these things together. When I they see. I heard Josh is like. Let me uh, give you one more answer that you like better, mm -hmm. huh? um, <laughs> which is. And it relates to what Mark is saying. We don't give people ways to spend what they want. One way in which we do a really bad job of letting people spend what they want is by making competition really hard, making entry really hard. Why do you get waste in any other industry? It's when you have a monopolist who gets lazy, right? And we have that pervasively in healthcare, right? If we think there's so many gaps, why don't we see entrepreneurs setting up new hospitals? Why don't we see new medical schools 
opening and new doctors competing. Uh, there's a bunch of doctors yelling at me on Doximity, which is their social network this week, for saying mm -hmm. this in The Economist. Um, but we make it too hard for people to enter medical schools and too hard to set up this kind of integrated, different solution, anything that doesn't fit in our current paradigm. So I'm not going to say there's no room for improvement. I think we should take advantage of the, the supply behaviors that we see out there. But I'm also going to defend the system, despite Amy's claim that no one would do it. Okay, so Amy, uh, have they covered all the answers? Or is there anything, do you have anything to possibly add to this? I thought I had covered all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm asking a different question. Oh. Uh, I went, so now, uh, if we could just design the system a little better, make it more competitive, and if we actually had the pro appropriate measure uh, that w we don't perform so badly because we're consuming all the healthcare through eating bad and stuff, do you have anything, what is your insight as to why it looks like to a naive observer uh, that things don't look like they're working so well? I, I guess. This is going to frustrate you, but I kind of agree with both of them. I agree with you're frustrated. I agree. I agree with Josh that the, the the fundamental drivers of poor health in the U.S. are not in the medical system, but I also agree with Mark that there is an enormous amount of waste in our current medical system, which doesn't mean there isn't also value added. I mean, I think you know th there's an old adage about like you know advertising that half of all advertising spending is wasted. We just don't know which half. Yeah. And I think that's kind of true. So advertising is effective, but it could be a lot more efficient if we knew which half to cut. And I think that's actually really true of medical care as well. Mm. And there are these, these social drivers, other factors, some of the things that you've looked at in your earlier JPAL work, it's hard to study them in, in you know, single point in time clinical trials because the interventions are so um, dynamic and individualized, but a lot of what's going on in Medicaid and in Medicare Advantage, these programs that are the ones growing the fastest and that I think are most in line with where Amy would like to go in our poor you know, uh, shadow of an efficient uh, healthcare system here, um, that are getting more into addressing those kinds of root causes, housing, uh, food insecurity, um, uh, um, interpersonal violence, things that you might, well, that's not medical care, but if you look at the needs of certain individuals and families and ask them you know, effectively, how would you like this healthcare money spent on your behalf? That seems more in line with what would make, make the most difference for them in their lives. I think my daughter taught me that this is called intersectionality in other contexts. But uh, okay, Amy, you get the last question of the night. What is the next book on? <laughs> there isn't a next book that I foresee, in part because, you know, uh, as we say, said at the beginning of this book, when usually people would ask us how we should we fix the health insurance system, we'd say, or I'd say, I don't know. That's why I work on it. I don't work on problems that I think I know the answer to. Now I think I know the answer to the health insurance problem. I don't know how to get there politically, but I feel like I know what on the whiteboard is the ideal solution. What I don't know, and I'm not saying, I, I mean, I agree with you, Mark, we know more than I'm implying, but I don't really know the answer to the kinds of questions that have been asked or that you were asking about how do we dramatically lower healthcare spending without you know, sacrificing a lot on patient side. And that's, you know, at least for the next several decades, I, that's what I'd like to try to figure out. And if we make any progress, or if others do, you know, maybe someday we'll write a book on that. But I, at least right now, feel like I have a lot of hard work to do first. Excellent. Uh, well, on that note, join me in uh, thanking Amy, Mark, and Josh.
You've been listening to a panel discussion, Tearing Down Healthcare to Rebuild It for Everyone, recorded in November of 2023. The Pie is a production of the Becker Freeman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're enjoying the discussions we're having on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the stories behind the pivotal scientific breakthroughs and research that are reshaping our world. Change how you see the world and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI Communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.